What if I told you that you can support your blood pressure and healthy CoQ10 levels with two chews a day? The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. That's like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 supports your cardiovascular health. Visit RadioBeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply on bundles and save 15% with the promo code DEAL. Before we get into today's episode, we want you to know The Washington Post has all of the information you need to stay on top of the latest coronavirus news. Sign up for our coronavirus newsletter to get our latest reporting and FAQs to keep yourself safe. Any article that you click from the newsletter is free to access. To sign up, go to WashingtonPost.com slash virus newsletter. The Post is also offering live coverage and stories with critical health information for free every day on our homepage and at WashingtonPost.com slash coronavirus. You can also use The Post's podcast, of course, to stay informed without being overwhelmed, always free online or on any podcast app. Start your day with The Daily 202, packed with news and insights on the top stories of the morning, and end it with Post Reports, The Post's flagship daily news show. Of course, here on Can He Do That, we'll keep bringing you deep dives on the political angles, examining the White House and the federal response. Find them all at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. All those links are available in the episode description. Now, on to the show. The coronavirus pandemic has presented some serious challenges to the American electoral process. Voting at polling locations basically requires people in a community to come together closely. In many ways, voting is a sort of contact sport. People are crowding into school gyms and libraries and fire stations and church basements. And in these locations, it can often get pretty tight. We've seen throughout this primary that those lines can be long. It can take, you know, even hours for people to move through them. And that's just the time spent waiting to vote. There's even more interaction as you near the front of the line. They're crowding around desks. They're exchanging paperwork with often elderly poll workers. And then in terms of the actual means of voting, that varies. But it uh, you know, certainly in all cases involves touching something, touching pens, touching an electronic machine, um, handling paperwork. And so there's just a, you know, a great degree of contact involved in it. To solve for these new public health challenges, some states have delayed primary voting. Others have implemented social distancing measures at polling locations with mixed results. Others yet have geared up to increase mail-in ballot capacity. Each of these circumstances raises different issues for how voters can choose a candidate in this year's primary elections. Some Democratic primaries, for example, are now scheduled for after the deadline previously set for choosing a candidate and only weeks before the Democratic National Convention. And of course, all of these now complicated primaries lead up to a nationwide voting day in November. Could these primary delays somehow delay America in choosing its next president? And more specifically, can the president himself delay, cancel, or change the circumstances of November's election? And as our electoral process is tested by all of these new voting measures, what new challenges could emerge to making sure everyone's vote is counted? Essentially, does democracy die in distancing? This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. 
To help me get a deeper sense of what's been happening at the state primary level, I spoke with The Post's national politics reporter, Isaac Stanley Becker. He's been covering these developments quite closely. Later, to help me get a deeper sense of what can happen in the general election, I spoke with Ned Foley, constitutional law professor at The Ohio State University, who's an expert in election law. But more to come on that. First, Isaac, over Skype from way more than six feet away, explained the specifics of how some states are making changes in real time as the primary calendar moves forward. States have said that they're working with county clerks and other election officials to advise poll workers to try to enforce some of these guidelines. So to try to keep people apart, distant from one another. And then certainly they've made an effort to provide hand sanitizer and gloves and other ways of wiping down machines and just sanitizing the equipment. So they've tried to do the best they could to protect people given the circumstances, but we've seen that it's been a bit patchy. So there were certain polling stations, for instance, in Illinois, which had its primary on Tuesday, where there were complaints that some of those materials, you know, wipes and other things just never showed up to certain locations. We spoke to the mayor of Chicago and she said there are always hiccups, but certainly unfortunate when there are hiccups in the context of a public health emergency. Right. So speaking of, of Illinois, this week, several states did hold primaries. How did how did they go? Arizona, Florida and Illinois specifically. What impact did we see from the unusual circumstances? There were certainly um, problems in terms of a shortage of poll workers, confused voters as polling sites were consolidated and closed. You know, what was interesting is that in Florida and Arizona, we saw really strong turnout numbers and especially from early and mail-in voting. So it in some ways showed the resiliency of the system and was a kind of, you know, showcase of the effectiveness of some of those alternative voting mechanisms. And even in some areas, we saw turnout in person that beat the turnout levels from past cycles. So that was pretty interesting. Illinois was really where the problems were concentrated. And in, uh, you know, suburban Cook County, we saw the lowest turnout in, in a number of years. And there was just a lot of confusion that voting rights advocates said really was at odds with conducting an election in which all people can freely and fairly vote. Given that there were some hurdles to having a free and fair election where all can vote, have the, have the results of these primary has been called into question in in any way thus far? We've heard some comments along those lines, not to the degree of candidates or top advisors. And we're obviously in a kind of interesting pivot point where Vice President Biden has at this point consolidated such a delegate lead or put together such a delegate lead that the primary is almost effectively over. And that would certainly make it easier if some of these later contests were basically just pro forma. But Senator Sanders has not formally bowed out. And so they have to go on and people do have to vote. And we have seen some concerns raised by some of the surrogates and some of the supporters who are in some of these polling places in Illinois, especially in some low income and minority districts, raising concerns and valid concerns about people's ability to vote. Now, whether that has an effect on the integrity of the election as a whole, whether that would have tipped the outcome, it's really much more difficult to say. But so far, we have not seen those sorts of complaints rise to the level of you know, the candidate or their top advisors. So to that point, Louisiana, Georgia, Kentucky, and Maryland have all delayed their primaries. And the DNC has said that a candidate 
needs to be selected by June 9th. This is a date set a long time ago. And yet Louisiana has pushed its primary to June 20th, Kentucky to June 23rd. Those things are both after the June 9th date. Can that candidate selection date be changed to accommodate all states that need to vote? So these are rules that are set by the DNC. These aren't inscribed in state law or in any sort of state constitution. So they come down to whether and how the DNC is going to enforce its own rules. It has said that these nominating contests need to be held by June 9th and that the actual delegates who will ultimately pick the nominee need to be sort of in place by June 20th. So according to the rules, states that move past those deadlines stand to be penalized by losing at least half of their delegates. It's unclear if they're actually going to enforce those rules. Obviously, these are somewhat extraordinary circumstances. So what's going to need to happen is that the states are going to have to file some sort of request for exemption. And then that goes to the DNC's Rules and Bylaws Committee, which is going to take up those requests and decide how to handle emergency calendar changes. Are those emergency calendar changes likely to affect the general election? No, they're not. They're not because the primary process is party run and it's just a question of the process leading up to the formal nomination of a candidate. Okay, so to touch on another part of this process that's been complicated, another state on Tuesday was supposed to hold a primary, but it didn't quite get there. Of course, that's Ohio. Can you explain what happened in the lead up to Ohio's planned primary on Tuesday? Yeah, it really was a sort of extraordinary 18 hours. I was on the phone with legal experts, experts in election law, who were saying that truly they had never seen this degree of uncertainty about whether voting would unfold so soon before polls were set to open. What happened was that the governor of Ohio, Republican Mike DeWine, held a press conference in the afternoon on Monday, at which he said that he himself did not have the authority to postpone the election but that he was going to support a a lawsuit filed by two private plaintiffs, elderly people, who said they were concerned about voting, you know, asking the election not to go on. This was filed in a county court. And I think most expected that lawsuit to be successful, you know, given the public health guidelines, given the position of state leaders. But it wasn't the judge. The judge rejected the complaint and said that the election would unfold. Then what we saw, though, is the governor who, you know, wasn't actually a party to this lawsuit. So the governor had not been, you know, barred from taking uh, any sort of action from this, from this suit or the result of it. So what he did was he went ahead and said, this is a public health emergency. And he directed his health director to order polling places closed as a matter of public health and, you know, for the safety of um, the population in the state. Then his secretary of state put out a directive effectively moving in-person voting to, to a later date, to June 2nd. Now, there's some further wrinkles here, which is that there are major questions about whether the secretary of state actually has the authority to do that. And the following day, we saw the Ohio Democratic Party file a suit of its own, saying that the secretary of state, in fact, does not have the authority to do that and that a court had to take action to ensure that voters had an adequate alternative means of registering their preferences in the election. So then where do things stand now? Will Ohio hold an election at a later date? So we'll have to see what's going to happen in terms of in-person voting and, and, and what the court says about the authority of the Secretary of State to move that date, whether the court says that that can't stand, whether the court directs the legislature or another body to to, to set a different date, 
But there are also, of course, other opportunities in terms of mail-in voting, absentee, and, and, and other options that the state party, at least, is pressing a court to, to safeguard. Other states find themselves in complicated legal situations at this point. The Wisconsin Democratic Party and the Democratic National Committee on Wednesday sued Wisconsin election officials demanding that the deadline for online voter registration and and vote-by-mail applications be extended. Why is the Democratic Party taking that step? So the suit asked that online and by-mail voter registration be extended, and then it made a number of other requests about absentee, not actually extending that deadline, but removing certain requirements for things like voter ID and proof of residence, which the parties argued involved things like scanners and printers that people didn't necessarily have access to during this difficult period of, of kind of self-isolation. The, the suit, you know, predicts a scenario in which that April 7th primary goes on as planned. And at this point, it's looking like it may. Neither the Democratic governor nor the GOP controlled legislature so far has taken steps to delay it. And elections officials say that they on their own don't have the authority to do that. So what the, what the National Democratic Party together with the state party is arguing is that the deadline for voter registration, for online voter registration and by mail voter registration has to be extended because many voters who would have otherwise planned to register on the same day in person on April 7th now may be reconsidering that in light of public health guidelines, in light of the guidance from the governor advising against gatherings of more than 10 people. So they're saying that more and more people want to, may want to avail themselves of those opportunities to register in an alternative way. But if the current deadline stands, they've effectively lost that opportunity. So as we look ahead to the rest of the electoral calendar for the Democratic primary, do you expect that more of these circumstances will come up or more court cases will emerge? How do you imagine that things will go forward? What do you expect to see? I mean, as hard as it is to believe, we're still in the really early stages of this. It already feels like a long period of time that we've been confronting this. And I think state election officials, legislators, others, state parties are still just beginning to wrap their heads around what to do. We have special elections, runoff elections, local elections throughout, you know, this month, next month, later in the spring and summer. And I think there are going to be calendar changes. I think there's going to be alternative setups. And it very well may be that there is additional litigation. I was just talking to Democrats down in Texas who are looking at the May 26th runoff election there. And you no know, envisioning possible litigation if there aren't steps taken by state leaders to um, ramp up alternative voting options. In-laws, love them or hate them, you're pretty much stuck with them. And when you're a ruler in the Middle Ages, that can be a serious problem. It might even land you dead. I'm Dan Jones, and on season four of This Is History, I'm telling the story of England's weirdest king, Henry III. He's in way over his head, and he's surrounded by bloodthirsty relatives with their eyes on his throne. To listen, search This Is History and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Now, all of these election delays and changes are still evolving for primaries at the state level. But what should we consider when it comes to the general election? The constitutional law professor I mentioned earlier, Ned Foley, directs the election law program at Ohio State and is an expert in the details of how elections work. I connected with Ned, also on Skype, where he offered some helpful precedent. 
we have been able to hold elections as a country, even in the midst of the Civil War and World War II. So our precedent is to hold elections and to keep holding them, if at all um, possible. So given that precedent, I want to ask the critical, can he do that question here early, which is, can the president change the date of the general election currently planned for, obviously, November of 2020? No. The the date is set by Congress, and that so that is within the power of Congress, not the power of the presidency. I think it's also important to distinguish between two components to an emergency situation, and, and this is actually how it played out with the Ohio primary earlier this week. The reason why I say there's two parts is that in Ohio, the first part was the health order. The the state director of health declared that as a matter of overriding necessity, people could not go to the polls on the scheduled election day for the primary of, of March 17th. But that was a health decision that it did close the polls, but it didn't end the election. There were ballots already cast, absentee ballots, and Ohio has in-person early voting. So those ballots also had been cast. They were still part of the same election. And that's what led to the second stage of the process where the secretary of state as the chief elections officer had to decide what happens to the election given that preliminary health ruling. And if we think about that, it would have to happen in this in the same two-step process in November. Again, you hope you don't have a similar emergency. But even if there was an initial health judgment that for some reason on, on November 3rd, you couldn't go to the polls, that would be a health determination about congregating at the polls. It wouldn't change the date of the election. It wouldn't end the election or cancel it. That would be a separate decision lodged in separate legal authority. So let's talk about that separate legal authority. What would have to happen in order to change the general election date? You mentioned this would happen in Congress. What would that process look like? What would it take? To change the date of the election would definitely take a new act of Congress, and it would have to apply both to congressional elections and the presidential election. I know you're focusing on the presidential election, and that's what we've been talking about. But Congress actually regulates the date both you know, for voting for president, but also voting for senators and, and U.S. representatives. We do all of that on November 3rd. And of course, for the presidency, the no- November 3rd vote is for the uh, the technical office of electors, the people who then meet in the Electoral College in December to actually vote officially for president. So it's a complicated process, but that November 3rd date is set by statute and would need to change by statute. There are statutes already in place, though, with respect to both the presidential election and congressional elections, that if for whatever reason there's been a failure to do the election on November 3rd, there is some residual authority to try to fix the problem that's already set by statute. It doesn't negate the election, but it is a kind of remedial way to deal with the crisis situation. And so potentially that could come into play. The rules are a little bit different, whether we're talking a presidential election or a congressional election in that context. Essentially, all of this requires cooperation of Congress, the president, and and the courts. But also local local officials. I think it's important to know that even though Congress sets the date, the way in which we run elections in the United States is to let state and local authorities actually administer the voting process. And, and so I think as, as you think about both parts that I talked about before, the health emergency part of it and then the election decision part of it, they're going to be state and local officials who are instrumental to that decision as well. 
So sort of pivoting from how from when we vote to more how we vote, states effectively can take steps to affect how we vote in November. Correct. So again, as I'm currently thinking about this and, and, and thinking about the provisions of federal constitutional law that would be applicable, if on you know, Monday, November 2nd, there was some new information that was causing public health experts, maybe, you know, the CDC is a federal body and local people to say, we've got another health emergency to worry about. You know, my reading of the U.S. Constitution, and in particular the 10th Amendment, which guarantees state sovereignty, is it would be necessary for the state officials to make the kind of decision that was made in Ohio to, to close polling places on November 3rd. That's not something that the federal government can do unilaterally. No part of the federal government, not the president, not Congress, precisely because the states uh, control the apparatus of the voting process. It would have to be state officials that would make the health judgment that you can't have people congregating at the polls the next day on November 3rd. So then along those lines, a question that I've been considering is, given that many voting procedures, as you say, sort of happen on a state level, is there a scenario for the general election where one state can make a decision then to halt their voting completely? So not a nationwide election change, but a state's voting is delayed. And the example I'm considering is if the virus is contained everywhere except in a given hotspot and that spot needs to make a, an emergency call, can they do that at a state level for the general election? Article 2 of the U.S. Constitution does give state legislatures the power to choose the method for appointing presidential electors. And of course, by custom for you know, many, many decades now, we've done that through the mechanism of the popular vote. But there would be constitutional authority. You know, I, I don't think it would be wise to exercise it. And But if, if we're talking about an emergency, it would at least be put on the table whether or not if you can't have a popular vote, you know, should the state legislature appoint presidential electors directly, that there would at least be the constitutional power to consider that you know, for them to do that in the middle of an election where absentee ballots have already cast, though, would raise significant due process problems under the 14th Amendment. You can't you can't kind of undo an election that you've let people vote in when it's already started. And there's also equal protection principles applicable to that. So so again, to use your question, if there's just one state that for a reason thinks well, we can't let people go to the polls on November 3rd, they might be able to make that health judgment, but that wouldn't end the election issue. The, the election issue is a separate question, and it would. It, and the first item on the election agenda would be, well, what do we do with the ballots already cast? Think of this analogy. You know, suppose that the power goes out at a polling place at 6 p.m., and the polls are supposed to be open till 7 p.m. You know, you have, from an equal protection perspective, you do have to worry about the voters who were relying on that last hour of voting, but that's been taken away from them because of the power outage. The analogy is not perfect, but in the way in which we do elections now, and especially anticipating much heavier reliance on absentee voting, by the time November 2nd arrives, there will be thousands and thousands of ballots already cast by mail in a particular state. And so closing the polls on November 3rd does not end the election. It simply asks the question, how do you relate the ballots already cast in this election to the expectation that voters had to be able to go to the polls tomorrow? 
And there are different ways to think about what's the right remedy for that. It's complicated given equal protection and due process. But that's why it's important to realize that even a state's decision to close the polls does not end the election itself. So then do do states at this point effectively have enough time to institute an all-absentee mail-in ballots for the general election? I think as a practical matter, every state in the nation has to anticipate the possibility that voters will rely on the the availability of absentee ballots as an alternative to in-person voting. And therefore, they need to be ready for that 100% of voter turnout is by mail, even if that hasn't historically been in the case. And even if they don't decide by law to move to what Oregon has done to be exclusively vote by mail. In other words, a state could say, we've always had polling places. We'd like to have polling places. And so we're going to keep that as a matter of law. But the voters may not use the polling places given fears about disease and and infection. And so every state has to be ready that all voters will want to rely on absentee ballots. I think that's just a practical necessity. That's going to be a challenge for some states, particularly those states that are not especially well versed in absentee voting. That I mean, again, states are very different places historically on this. Some states have been doing what's called no excuse vote by mail for many elections now and have very high percentages of vote by mail already. Other states like Michigan and Pennsylvania are doing no excuse vote by mail for the first time this year. They had made that switch before the virus, but they should certainly be anticipating that their voters are going to want to rely on that. And so there may not be that many people who show up at a traditional polling place on November. Again, it depends on what the health circumstances are at the time. Now, what happens if a mail-in ballot arrives after Election Day? Is it still counted? Depends on state law currently. Some states, which are in the in the lingo of the community, are called postmark states, which means that as long as a ballot is postmarked on or before Election Day, it will count if it arrives up to several days later. Again, it varies state by state, but three days, five days, seven days, whatever. Other states, though, are arrival-based systems, which means you have to have your absentee ballot arrive at the local Board of Elections by Election Day. Has any of this raised concerns about the legitimacy of these elections? Will certain populations be more vulnerable to suppression? Will everyone's vote be counted? Are there any concerns along those lines? Well, I think we always have to be vigilant to be faithful to our principle of everybody has equal voting rights. I mean, that, and that's constitutional law and the one person, one vote doctrine. So we have a national obligation to run this election according to that fundamental national principle. And I think we can do that. It's going to be a challenge. uh, And, you know, it's obviously more complicated because of the virus. But I don't see any reason if we put our minds to it that we can't meet that challenge and, and, and abide by that principle. It does require ramping up the capacity for absentee voting and and doing it in a way that is sensitive to the needs of all voters, regardless of language, background, or physical disabilities and so forth. But with that principle and standard in mind, I think we, we can do this so that everybody has equal voting rights and, and that we end up having an election that does qualify as a free and fair election and so meets that test of legitimacy. Just to underline sort of the point here, there will be potentially several challenges that face us both throughout the rest of the primary season and into the general election. 
But among them is not a concern that a president can make a decision on a whim to cancel or postpone the general election in any way, correct? As a legal matter, correct. I mean, I do think candor requires acknowledging, given the history of the Ukraine matter that caused impeachment, that you you have to, be, again, be vigilant about protecting the integrity of the process. And that includes at least asking the question that you're asking, you know, is, is it possible that an incumbent office holder might try to manipulate the rules for a partisan or, or incumbency advantage so that the election is not a level playing field? I think we ought to be able to distinguish between the exercise of, of, of executive power in the public interest when it's done for the right reasons in good faith to save lives and to protect the public and, and allow for that as we need to allow for that compared to wrongful circumstances that are an abuse of authority. Now, unfortunately, in the last decade or so, we've seen public officials manipulate election laws for partisan advantage, gerrymandering, you know, redistricting for political gerrymandering is just the most obvious example of that. And there's been, you know, manipulation of voter registration laws and voter ID laws that look an awful lot like one party trying to get an advantage over the other. But having said that, that doesn't mean every time public officials act, they're doing it for partisan wrong reasons. They, As in Ohio this week, they acted for the right reasons. And our system should be robust enough to make the distinction between the two. Based on your research and experience, do you think our system is robust enough to distinguish between an official in power acting rightfully for the will of the people or acting in a way that is overexerting their power? Yes. I mean, that requires all of us to be vigilant, including you know, the, the media plays an important role on this. Public discourse does as well. You know, again, the, the history of elections in America should give us reasons for optimism because we've been improving it ever since our founding began. And, and so the 20th century, we've done, did elections better than the 19th century. And hopefully we'll continue to improve. Do we have a perfect system? No, there probably is no perfect system, but it's a pretty good system and it's better than it was in the past. And I do think it is adequate to the challenge and adequate to the question you just asked. We do have the capacity to distinguish between misconduct that is partisan manipulation that should be contemned versus legitimate conduct, which is designed to adjust rules when necessary so that voters actually decide who the winner is. I mean, I think what happened in Ohio was an effort to preserve to the maximum extent possible voter choice, to preserve a free and fair election at the same time as saving lives. And I think we were able to, to recognize that distinction. And, and that should give us comfort that we could similarly tell the difference in November if what's going on is the right sort of response versus the wrong kind of response. This has been another episode of Can He Do That? Please stay safe and healthy and use the post as a resource. Can He Do That? is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by Carol Alderman and Ariel Plotnick, who are working incredibly hard during this time to bring this show to you. We also have design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks, logo art from Loren Boglio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon. We'd like to know how the coronavirus is affecting you. 
the activist, the campaign volunteer, the poll worker, the election administrator, the state delegate, the convention organizer, and the voter. Whoever you are, we want to know what this public health event reveals about us, especially in an election year. We're painting a picture of the pandemic from different perspectives over time. We'll be sharing your ongoing story on one of our Washington Post podcasts. If you're interested in taking part, please record a voice memo. Tell us who you are in as much detail as you like and how the coronavirus is affecting your life. Then send this voice memo to us at postreports at washpost.com. That's P-O-S-T-R-E-P-O-R-T-S at washpost.com. What if I told you that you can support your blood pressure and healthy CoQ10 levels with two chews a day? The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. That's like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 supports your cardiovascular health. Visit RadioBeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply on bundles and save 15% with the promo code DEAL.